0: Hello and welcome to today's edition of the Business Excellence Podcast. My name is Rail Bricker coming to you from Perth, Western Australia. And with me, as usual, my co-host from Brisbane, Australia, Lindsay Adams.
1: Hello and
0: welcome. For a value added extra, excellencepodcast.com has heaps of free resources for you to download. That is excellencepodcast.com. And with us is our special guest, Ira Blumenthal from Atlanta, Georgia.
2: Ira, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Welcome. Well, the pleasure is mine. And, and, you know, as I I showed you before, I've spent a significant amount of time in your wonderful country. All right. (laughs) I even had a house for a little while at Manly Beach. Okay. I don't eat Vegemite. But um, uh, so I'm just thrilled and excited to make some new friends and and also uh, be on this wonderful, glorious podcast.
1: Thank you, mate. Um, Ari, you describe yourself as a renaissance man, and and I, you know, I was talking to you before we started, and I said, well, help me understand. What do you mean by that? And 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 you said, I'm a guy who's passionate. You know, I'm passionate about sport. I'm passionate about coaching, philanthropy, writing, and the list just goes on. I mean, to our listeners, this guy has a wealth of experience and we talked to him about the concept of your best is next. And Ira, I believe he's written a book uh, about this. So so talk to me about this, your best is next. I love this concept.
2: Well, you know, it's originally it was designed to – you know, to attack some of the naysayers, you know, people that are turning around and saying, "Ah, I'm turning 50, or I'm turning 55, or it's all downhill from here. And I, and I don't believe that in any way, shape or form, whether you're 18 years old, and you're moving on to college, you're a college graduate moving on to a career, okay, or, or someone moving into a second, you know, a, a second career or uh, a, a mom who decided to enter the, the workforce or somebody who's 75 years old trying to figure out what's next. It's all about tomorrow. It's all about What's next? That's a threshold question. So as far as I'm concerned, your best is next is focused on tomorrow. It's focusing on what's next. It's it's the bucket list. It's it's things, you know, how many times we bumped into a friend or neighbor who told us, oh, gee, one day I'm going to write a book or I'm going to learn to play the piano. Well, if not now, when? So hopefully this book, which has... Ended up in a, uh, a syndicated column here in the states, and a number of speaking engagements could be a catalyst to get folks to think about tomorrow. Your best is ahead of you. It is about next. I don't know if that it describes it, and and also to going back to the Renaissance man, a Renaissance man is one who is multi-passionate about many things. Perhaps maybe a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. But uh, I just love my many lives. It does confuse people because when someone asks Ira what do you do for a living it's a tough question to ask because i do too many things but uh, your best is next
0: well you know i mean i also understand that in the context of your background which is as a, as a as a college athlete and then a a coach in both lacrosse and football and and it is about being the best you can be you know and coming out and being the best you can be on any day and the next day is is better than today you know that that's the that's the progress
2: well, 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 it is, and it's all about improvement. You know it's this is not about you know being an athlete and winning a Stanley Cup or a World Series ring. it It, it is about competing with yourself and figuring out how you can raise the bar in your own life you know perhaps you know i know i know you'd mentioned you you've done some triathletes or you tri, triathlons i mean how do you become a little better or how, how do you uh, you know deliver a speech to your colleagues and then decide how to be better next time it is it's constant continuous improvement we're living in a in a process you know we never get there we're always looking to be better when you're through learning you're through so to me i just embrace it and there's not a day that goes by in my life where I don't learn something that might help me better, even for my kids. I mean, you know, I'm sure you have the same, across the pond, you have the same challenges. You know, I'd turn around years ago and I'd expect my children, I have five kids and 10 grandchildren, 11th on the way, and I'd expect them to call me back. Well, now I can take my 26-year-old son, Ryan, and I can call him three times in five minutes and he won't answer. But if I text him, (laughs) he 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 responds responds immediately (laughs) in a nanosecond. So guess what? This old guy here has learned to become, you know, a a better text messenger. A little tech savvy. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'm a techno peasant, actually. But the reality is if if I'm going to get better and I'm going to communicate with my kids in the future, I need to understand their model. And that's about being better. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see where that gets okay. me.
1: Well, well, then what would you say is the single most important skill that you should continuous, continuously develop to, to create this success, to create your next, your best
2: next? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I would say, you know, if you gave me A couple of hours to get back, you'd probably have six more answers, but I'm going to give you one answer for the, you know, for the time constraints we have. And I would say it is communication. It's communication skills. Every war that's ever fought, every divorce that was ever, that ever had, every issue in business or in life typically came to came about because some sort of failure to communicate. I've kind of rewritten that word, by the way, and it's not in the dictionary, but I think we're suffering today from a a concept of commu communication, commu because we think we're communicating, but we're not. So I would guess my long-winded answer to your question is that if, if one could master communication skills, and it's not just about speaking or writing, it's about listening and understanding and cognition. I, I think that's critical. I think that's absolutely critical for, for every stage of business and life.
1: So uh, I'm, I'm, I I'm have two children, um, and they're, they're, both have, they're both married. We used to have this wonderful tradition in our family called Friday night, family night. The kids would come home, free meal with mum and dad, catch up. One Friday night, my wife is uh, in the kitchen, you know, preparing the meal. We're all sitting at the kitchen table and she turns around and I hear this voice say, oh, should I get my phone out? And I looked around and all of us were not, at we were at the table, not talking to each other, mucking around with our mobile phones. And I think your, your communication is, is so... <laughs> relevant in the technical world that we live in uh do you reckon that you know these mobile devices that are are glued to our hands these days have got in the way of you know good old-fashioned communication
2: well you you know there there was a day when we stopped talking to each other it's funny you should say that we have a family reunion every summer we go to the the beach south carolina and there might be 35 of us or 40 of us and it's always around july 4th our independence day here in the states, so everyone's wearing red, white, and blue bathing suits, of course, right? And there's a picture. There's a picture of maybe 35 of us, including children, waiting in the ocean. Maybe the ocean is up to our shins, and it's a beautiful family picture. Red, white, and blue. We call it the red, white, and blue <laughs> men fall. It's kind of a little tradition there. <laughs> and very good. I looked at the picture closely, and I would say 80 percent of the folks in that picture had a cell phone in their hand, waiting in the ocean. Wow. You know, so so to me, I think you're exactly right. You know, it'd be really kind of a fun ex- experiment. We've done this occasionally is turn the phones off, put them in a drawer and just look eye to eye and get back to what it's all about. I think the communication through phone is great, but it'll never replace eyeball to eyeball, my opinion.
0: I mean, it's it, it got to a point Ira, where I wrote, I, was, I wrote a blog a few weeks ago. I was in the gym and there was a, a young girl there, early 20s. She walked in, texting into a class, was already late, carried on texting between each set of exercises. And I said, well, it's 8.30 in the morning. Is she not present in what she was doing? Like she was totally, she was in the gym by almost rote action and not present in what she was doing. And yesterday I was doing a spin class. And and it's a friend of mine who runs it, and she 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 knows I, I go to spin at nine thirty in the morning, and so sometimes my office are calling me and things like that. And she 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 looked at me and said, "If you if you answer your phone or text today in the class, I'm going to ask you to leave." Okay, and I thought that was quite a, you know, she, she actually was trying to make a point that she wanted everyone to be, you know, willing and focused. But but moving from that, focus recovery is just as as, as much a part. In, in our lives and our businesses and our sport of being better for next time, the reset button. How do you motivate people to actually you know get off the treadmill now and then and actually recover?
2: Well okay, you know and, and, I, and I'm glad you said that. Um, now I, I'll use an example that that you know hope, hopefully isn't too foreign to your your listeners and I'll use the example of baseball. All right, and and I'll explain it a little bit to make sure, in case we have some folks that don't understand the sport as well as we do here in the states. It's it's typically our national pastime, although we stole it from the Brits. It was really cricket before it became baseball. <laughs> Just want you to know that I'll I'll admit that. But you know, I don't care what sport it is. If you look at youth sports, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, and they make a mistake, whether they miss a basket in basketball or they strike out in baseball, it's guaranteed that as they change positions in baseball, maybe run out to the field or in basketball, they will miss the next few shots or they'll, they'll miss the next ball hit to them. Why? They haven't recovered. Great athletes learn how to make a mistake and recover. You miss a shot, you keep on shooting. Well, it's not the easiest thing in the world because people get so into the miss that they forget about what's next. You can't go back. There's no way that you can go back. So when you ask the question about motivation and recovery, you know, I'll give you uh, I have been, I have been known to say some idiotic, stupid things over the years. And and I I specialize in saying stupid things. So now I'm coaching a youth baseball team. We're now in a national championship. This is a, a stellar 12 year old. We call it a travel team. And we're playing in the semifinals against a team we had beaten four times that season. Four times we should, this should be an easy victory. And we lost, which put us in the loser's bracket. Now, the good news is we, we turned it around and we ended up winning. And my boys were looking at their feet. They were so down, so depressed. And I don't know how this came to me. God just shoved it in my head. And I looked at my kids and I said, you know, if God would have wanted you to look back, he would have put your toes where your heels are. Your toes are in your front of your feet. We have to go forward. We have to recover. And, you know, these kids are now in their 30s. And I still bump into them, and they still turn to me and go, I always remember that, Coach B. My toes are in the front of my feet. You, you've got to go forward. You can't do anything about the past. We all make mistakes. We all drop the ball. We all have blunders. We all miss a sales call. We, we all get rejected by the date we went. But the reality is we've got to keep on going on. Life, life is a series of comebacks. That's all it is. It's a do-over. It's recovery. So I think that once someone masters the art of recovery, there's no, there's no end to what they can achieve. So what you're
1: talking about here really is—it's—it's it's hard work, isn't it? I mean, it, it, is work ethic uh, how important is that in in terms of uh, achieving excellence?
2: It, it, it's the most important thing. You know, it, it, it's really interesting. I believe that everything in life, everything in business, is ninety-five is is five percent idea and ninety-five percent work. I know that you you both have friends who have a great idea for a book. Or a great idea for a screenplay, or a great idea for a business, and they talk about it for decades. That's the five percent, the ones that move over to the ninety-five percent work. G- give you give you two examples, okay, if I may. One is an athletic example, and one is a music example. You all remember the incredible talent Michael Jordan, right? Okay, yeah. Michael Jordan. Well, I had I had the privilege of going to a Chicago Bull practice session when the Bulls were in their Drive for five. They were champion after champion after champion, and we got there at eight o'clock in the morning. We were told to be there early because the Bulls started practicing at nine, and we weren't there for autographs. We were going to observe a professional sports team practice. Eight o'clock in the morning, we arrived. At eight fifteen, Michael Jordan came out of the locker room alone with a trainer, and they stretched his body for forty five minutes. Think about that. Forty five minutes to me is a full blown workout. This guy is stretching. At nine o'clock, the buzzer goes off and the team comes out and they practice. Why? They were paid to be at practice at nine o'clock, but perhaps the greatest player in the history of the game was out 45 minutes early. Practice is over. Everyone runs back to the locker room, but Michael stays on the court with a a rookie and works on a a crossover or a three-point shot or a foul shot for another 30 minutes. We see the end result of greatness. We see Michael Jordan soaring over the court, scoring 30 points a game, but we don't see the work. Another example, my wife and I, we've been blessed to be married 39 years, but at 25 years, we went to Las Vegas with our whole family, all our kids, and we went to what they call the Little White Chapel to renew our vows at 25. And I bought tickets to see Elton John, Elton John, the Red Piano Tour. And I walked around Caesar's palace in Las Vegas and I saw the showroom and I heard it was beautiful. This is in the afternoon. And I went to open the door and the security guard said, you can't go in there, sir. I said, well, I have 10 tickets for tonight's, you know, and I just love to see the room. He goes, you cannot go in there. And I said, why? And he said something that just blew me away. Elton John is rehearsing. What? What? Elton John rehearses? Elton John, who has sang Tiny Dancer and "Rocket Man" 18,427 times, is rehearsing? (laughs) And I asked the security guard, how often does he rehearse? And he said, show day, he rehearses 90 minutes. 90 minutes. So I found something out about Las Vegas. You give somebody a $20 bill, you can get into a showroom. So I give the security guard a a, a $20 bill. I go in there and I watch 15 or 20 minutes rehearsal. Gentlemen, it was the exact same songs I've heard him sing for Two, three decades rehearsing it. So go back to your your statement. Yeah, nobody achieves anything great without work. We see the end result. You know, I have a a bunch of grandbabies. I always remember someone saying to me, nobody cares about the labor. They just want to see the baby, you know, so.
0: (laughs) Well, you say, I mean, the famous Michael Jordan quote that actually I, I have in my book Talking about motivation was that he says he's missed nine thousand shots in his career, and lost almost three hundred games, and twenty six times he had to take the game winning shot and missed. And he said he's failed over and over again, and that's why he succeeded.
2: Oh, and you know, and the history books are filled. Conrad Hilton went bankrupt four times before he built the Hilton. Thomas Edison, remember him? You know, the light bulb. Thomas Edison, it took him 10,000 tries to invent the light bulb. And there's a wonderful interview by the New York Times. Mr. Edison, what did you learn inventing the light bulb in 10,000 tries? And Thomas Edison said, I learned 9,999 ways not to invent a light bulb. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I love it. So, Ira, you—you um, know—you've had a, an amazing career. Had a lot of interesting life. Oh, well, it's not—it's not over. It's not over. This, oh, yeah, this you had, and you—you <laughs> you continue to have an amazing career. And and I know mentors are important to you. Who are a few of the mentors, the people who've helped refine you? Yeah,
2: that, that, that's a—that's a great question, and it's also a tough question, in as much as. You know, I could probably give you a hundred names as I started thinking about them. Along the way, and whether it was a teacher or whether it was a, whether a coach or whether it was a minister or a rabbi or, you know, a, a colleague or a, or a boss, whatever, all the way through in my journey, I've learned something. S- some of them were very positive lessons on ways to live my life, and some were ways not to live my life. But I, I would guess that if I were, were to probably pick a couple of people, I would say my dad, My dad was an entrepreneur. I mean, you know, my dad was a professional athlete early on in his career, but he he was he was he had the most incredible work ethic that I've ever seen. So, for my dad, it was it was about work ethic. I would say, you know, and I I don't want to make this too familiar, but my wife Kim is you know as they say the wind beneath my wings. You know, um, I'm the guy that talks a lot and is very energetic, and Kim is, is in the background a lot. But I will tell you what, I wouldn't be anywhere near what I am today if it wasn't for her because, oh, by the way, she's the one that can honestly say, no, I don't like that paragraph or I would change that in your speech or I think there's a better way to go. But by the same token, I also had a college coach, all right, college coach. And the college coach um, I ended up working for, this is in football, all right, his name is Saban. Now, there's a there's a Sabin now in American football mm-hmm. at Alabama. Nick Saban. This was his uncle, Lou Saban. And Lou ended up coaching professional uh, football as well as college. But he was a a college coach of mine. And I, I learned something interesting. I was a young guy. I was the graduate assistant on a football staff of 17. And I turned to coach Lou one day, and I said, how come every coach is dramatically different in demeanor and in personality? And he turned to me and I can't remember all the names. He might say, "Well, Ira, why did you play why did you play so hard for Coach Bill?" And I'd say, "I hated him. He he yelled at me. He screamed at me. He called my mother names. He kicked me. He was horrible." But I wanted to prove him wrong. "And why did you play for Coach Ralph?" Man, he was like a grandpa to me. He was just loving and kind and he listened to me. "Why do you play for Coach, you know, Bob?" Well, he was Mr. X's and O's. He knew the game. And it turned out that every coach had a different different personality. And I turned to coach Lou and I said, why am I on the staff? And he asked Ira, what were you doing last year at the same time? Well, I was on the team. I'd go out for a beer with the guys. And oh, by the way, the things that they would say to a 22-year-old coach, they would never say to a 40 or 50 or 60. year So what I learned was great management is about finding colleagues in your management program that can can motivate, educate, and inspire all kinds of people. Some people are motivated by fear, some people are motivated by love, etc. So I could go on all day, but I, I can't thank those people in my life that have really helped me become who I am. And I'm I'm a work in process though. I'm not finished yet. Well,
0: you know, one of the things that people have always told me is that you never end up with a mentor for life, you know, that that mentors come and go. In your life, and they're each there for a purpose at a time. Some will be there as your sounding board for life, but but a lot of them, when you look back, and you know, you know, I worked six thousand three hundred foot underground um, at age twenty, and I never appreciated that probably till I was thirty. I probably never well, ex- understood the experience of being underground and being a manager as a twenty-two year old white guy in a you know dominantly black South Africa but I only, I understood only understood that many years later and understood that these people whose names I can't even remember mentored me at the time but taught me a lot but I never appreciated it and so you know
2: that, that, that's really profound and you know you just said something that we should we, we either one of us should write about you may not have a mentor for life but the message stays with you for life you know I I every once in a while I will quote something and I don't know where I got it from. And I, I often will say, you know, if you're out there, I'd like to give you attribution. But I don't know where I got this from. I know it wasn't from me. So, you know, it, it, it is really kind of an interesting, you know, there's a, a little poster I have someplace in my house and it says something, and I'm paraphrasing it. When I was 16, my dad was the stupidest guy on the planet. When I was eighteen, yeah, he had a couple of good ideas, yeah, but he still wasn't that smart. When I was twenty-three, I r- realized my dad was pretty smart. Now that I'm thirty, my dad was a genius. Well, we we learn these through evolution, you know.
1: Uh, true. All right,
2: uh, last question: What's next for Ira Blumenthal? Well, what's next for me is your last question. Um, <laughs> the uh, that, that's really really great. I, I'm glad you said that. I th- this may may surprise because it has nothing to do with my bio you know i've i've built great friendships with steven tyler from aerosmith and and uh general colin powell and lots of people in my life i've been blessed i've been really blessed and fortunate but i've always had a a a love for music and it's kind of an avocation so and and as does my wife so we started looking at what is happening to our world to your listeners world oh by the way surveillance oh by the way tech technology, oh, by the way, cloning life in a test tube, unisexuality, okay, every, and I fell in love with this guy, this British author named Eric Blair, who you know as George Orwell, and I studied 1984, and everything that this guy talked about in 1949 is happening today, big brother, is watching you. George Orwell, Eric Blair once said, when television came out about the same year, if we can sit and watch them on the screen, how long will it be before they can watch us watching them? So my wife and I decided to take our our love for music and our love for George Orwell, and we wrote a musical comedy called By George. Big Brother is watching you, watching all you do, watching all you do. Big Brother is watching you, and he knows your every move. I don't have a very good voice. So we wrote a full blown musical comedy based on the life of George Orwell. We talk about clones and cellular phones and test tube babies and surveillance and on and on and on. So what's next for me is I don't care whether it's a local grade school. It doesn't have to be Broadway. I want to see my play on the boards. So hopefully that's what's next for Ira Blumenthal with his beautiful bride, Kim.
1: Well, that sounds really exciting. Um, so, Ira, you know, obviously our listeners might want to get in touch with you. Uh, such an interesting guy. So many uh, interesting things to talk about. An amazing book. How would they do that? What's the best way to think? For
2: well, them? okay. So, you know, um, I have a few emails, but the easiest one to remember is you can email me and, and I, will, I will respond. I promise I will respond to anyone that reaches out to me. It might be a day or two, depending on how busy I am, but I am Ira at Ira Speak singular.com ira at iraspeak.com and my website is the same it's www so i i would welcome i'm i'm you know as far as i'm concerned life is about building new friendships and continually networking and figuring out creative ways to you know work with new people and create history so i certainly welcome anyone reaching out to me Uh, other than borrowing money i'll respond (laughs) Ira, it's been an absolute pleasure
1: uh, having you with us today. Thanks so much for your company.
2: Well, I, I'm honored and humbled by both of you. Uh, and uh, I, I can't thank you enough for thinking of me. And perhaps one day we'll have, a, we'll have a sequel.
0: Look forward to that, Ira. And thank you very much for being our guest today on the Business Excellence Podcast. This is Arayl Bricker and Lindsay, Lindsay Adams signing off for today's edition And just a reminder, folks, there is a wealth of resources for you to download for free, including the 48-page Building Excellence book on www.excellencepodcast.com. Railbricker and Lindsay Adams signing off.